Well, hi, Emmanuel Faith. Thanks for joining us for worship online today. We're so grateful that you're here. And we are jumping straight into week three of our teaching series on Jesus's parables. We're calling this series Essential Stories because in these parables, Jesus addresses things that are absolutely essential, not only for our lives, but for our cultural moment. And I think you're going to see that as we study this parable in Matthew chapter 18. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open there right now. Remember, parables were stories that Jesus told. They were designed to create disorientation that would lead to spiritual awakening. They were designed to make us scratch our head a little bit and go, I'm not exactly sure what he means by that or what to do with that, but that eventually the story would work its way into our soul and cause us to have an an aha moment. And I think these stories are as applicable today as they ever have been before. Today, I want to tell you a story that Jesus told over 2,000 years ago, starting in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And listen to this parable that Jesus told. It says this, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And we'll talk about how much that is in just a moment. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience on me and I will pay you everything. Verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. If you want a great definition of forgiveness, highlight circle or star verse 27 in Matthew chapter 18. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. We're, we're supposed to notice that it's the exact same words that that servant had used with his master. But he refused. And he went and he put him in jail until he should pay all the debt. And when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. 
I don't know about you, but I read the end of that parable and uh, I I get a a little bit worried. I mean, is Jesus saying that one of the requirements for salvation is that we forgive? I mean, somebody could easily take it that way and it makes salvation seem transactional. You do this and then God does that. I'd like to suggest to you that that's not at all what Jesus is saying. See, Jesus isn't saying forgiving others gets you into heaven. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, though, is that forgiving others is an indicator that heaven has gotten into you. That when you start to extend that to the people around you, it's the realization and the authentication that you've received that forgiveness from God. To say it another way, Jesus is teaching us that a Christian who holds a grudge is an oxymoron. Let me give you a picture that might help you grapple with that just a little bit better. Um, if, If I were to put the snorkel on and dive into this lake behind me, the snorkel would serve two purposes, right? Um, It would allow me to keep my head underwater and it would allow me to get clean air from the world around me. Even when I'm underwater, it would allow me to pull that air into my lungs. But it does another thing also. It allows me to get the carbon dioxide out of my lungs. It allows me to push it out also. This tube is a two-way street. Uh, Air comes in and it goes out. And if I block the end of this, I block the airflow out and I block the airflow in. And what Jesus is saying in this section of scripture is if you block the flow, you block it both ways. That's what he wants us to grapple with. He, He wants us to wrestle with this idea that when you block the flow of forgiveness, you also block the flow of grace into your life. See, not letting grace have its way through us cuts us off from knowing the joy of grace within us. Let's take this and and apply it in, in our world today. It was five years ago to the very day that I'm filming this sermon, June 17th, 2015. There was a prayer meeting going on at Mother Emmanuel the, the uh, church, Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Twelve people were gathered in this Bible study and prayer meeting, and a young man came in and joined. The pastor invited him to sit down right next to him for this prayer meeting. For over an hour and a half, they studied the Bible together, and they bowed their heads to pray. And as they bowed their heads to pray and closed their eyes, that young man took a gun out of his bag and fatally shot nine of the people gathered for that prayer meeting, including the pastor of that church. Less than 48 hours later, he stood before a judge at a bond hearing and family members were there of the victims who had been killed and the judge invited the family members to share. Nadine Collier got up and spoke on behalf of her mother, Ethel Lance, who had been fatally killed in that prayer meeting. She said this, 
I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. And I will never talk to my mom again. And I will never hold her hand again. But I forgive you. And I have mercy on your soul. See, see, I'd invite you to write this down. That that if the method of the world is vengeance, the way of the kingdom is forgiveness. The way that you know that grace has gotten into your soul is not by how you treat people who treat you well. The way you know grace has gotten into your soul is how you treat people who wrong you and who treat you poorly. After all, Jesus said, what credit is it to you if you love those who love you? Even the Gentiles, people who have no idea who God is, they do that, but but not so with you. You love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, how you treat people horizontally, the people around you, is the best indicator to know what has happened between you and God vertically. And that's what Jesus wants us to wrestle with in this essential story. One of the things that's really important as we talk about forgiveness is to talk about what forgiveness is not. So let me give you, as we jump into this topic today, let me give you five things that forgiveness is not before we jump into this parable and explore what forgiveness is. The first thing forgiveness is not, forgiveness is not condoning what has happened. It's not approving of a wrong. It's not saying that what was done was okay. In fact, forgiveness demands just the opposite. Forgiveness demands that we name the wrong and that we point it out as being wrong. The second thing that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Do you know nowhere in the Bible are you commanded to forgive and forget, a a common cliche that we use? Nowhere is that found in the scriptures. Forgiveness is not a one-time decision. You know, have you ever found yourself deciding to forgive somebody and then when you see them again, something in your stomach turns and you realize that you haven't really forgiven them? See, oftentimes forgiveness is far more of a process than it is instantaneous. But the decision to forgive is to say, when I find myself carrying this bitterness and this desire for vengeance again, I'm committing to dropping it then also. Forgiveness is not eliminating any consequences for a wrong that's been done. You can forgive somebody and still call the police. You can forgive somebody and still press charges. Those two things are not the same. Forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences. And finally, Forgiveness isn't the same thing as reconciliation. This is really important because oftentimes people combine these two ideas and they're not the same. Forgiveness takes one person. It takes you. It's between you and God to choose to say that you forgive somebody. 
But reconciliation takes two. It takes somebody who's forgiving someone else and it takes somebody who's repenting and admitting they're wrong and this desire of both people to come back into a healthy, life-giving relationship. You see, sometimes reconciliation isn't possible. Sometimes reconciliation isn't advisable. Sometimes the more uh, godly thing to do is to establish appropriate boundaries for people that continue to hurt you. So if forgiveness isn't those five things, what is it? And that's exactly what Jesus draws out in this story he tells in Matthew chapter 18. You see, as we look at the context, Matthew chapter 18 is all about relationships. In fact, in verse 15, it started to talk about relationships in the church that had gone wrong and what to do about that. And it seems like as we dive into verse 21 of Matthew chapter 18, this question that arose in verse uh, 15 is still on Peter's mind. Listen to the way that verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18 reads. Here's what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Some translations say you have won him over. And so you can just imagine Peter going, okay, well, that's a good idea. But how many times should we do that? I mean, Jesus, there's got to be a limit on this. And so he says in verse 21, Lord, how often will, I, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And, G, and Peter's thinking, this is really generous. I'm like way out there seven times because most rabbis in Jesus's day would have taught three times or four times at most. And Jesus looks back at Peter and says, I do not say seven times, but 70 times seven times. That's, for all you mathematicians out there, that's 490 times. And some of you are going, I've got a few people in my life that are on 489. But that's not Jesus' point. He's actually saying, no, 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 no. As many times as somebody wrongs you, you forgive them. He's using hyperbole. It's a, a way of exaggerating. Um, uh, all the dads out there will probably recognize that type of hyperbole. You say things to your kids like, I've told you a million times to make your bed, when in reality it might only be 900,000 times, right? (laughs) Yeah, no, Jesus is saying God's forgiveness of you knows no limitations. He forgives and he forgives and he forgives and he forgives. And your limitations uh, of forgiveness with each other should reflect that of your father. You forgive, and you forgive, and you forgive, and you forgive. What happens between you and God vertically is the determining factor between what happens between you and everybody else horizontally. So Jesus tells this disorienting, uncomfortable story to drive his point home. Here's what he says, 24 through 27. So he says, or first 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. So he's already talking, he's talking once again about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, where God gets what he wants. He reigns and he rules. 
It might be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. He began to settle and one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Stop there. Now, some of your Bibles have a note in there that says that's roughly 20 years worth of wages. 20 years worth of wages. Um, Another way of looking at it, that the annual income or the annual operating expenses for the region of Galilee in Jesus's day was roughly 300 talents. So we're talking about a lot of money. Uh, Some scholars have equated this to what the U.S. owes China all on one person's back and one person's bank account. It's a lot of money. It's an astronomical amount. It's an amount that nobody would be able to pay back. Which makes it an interesting thing what the, uh, the servant asks for. Listen to what he asks for. He says, verse 26, So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience on me, and I will pay you everything. And I will pay you everything. That's crazy. This this man's never going to pay back his debt. And that's Jesus's point in telling this. He doesn't need time. He doesn't need God to be patient. He needs God to be merciful. He needs pardon. He asks for patience. But what he needs is pardon. And I think what Jesus wants us to wrestle with as his followers and his, as his disciples is that we are all in the exact same position as this servant. We owe a debt we could never pay. The wages of sin is death. We could never pay that off on our own. And so as we begin this journey, I would invite you to write this down. We have to embrace our need for forgiveness because it's experienced before it's extended. It's experienced in our heart before it's extended from our heart. See, what this passage is showing us is that we are all, every single one of us, in desperate need of mercy. And luckily for us, God gives us exactly what we need. Not not just what we ask for, patience, He gives us what we need, pardon, mercy, grace. And how many people are out there thinking, I just need a little bit more time. I've got to clean up my life a little bit. I've got to clean up my act a little bit and then I'll come to God and and then he'll accept me. But what Jesus says is, no, you don't need patience. You need pardon. You don't need more time. You need divine mercy. And that's exactly what we get from our heavenly father. In verse 33, Jesus summarizes it. He says that you should forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. As the Lord has forgiven you. That's our motivation. And we need to let that debt that we owe to God sit on us. Not so that we feel shame, but so that we become people of mercy That's what God wants for us. And it's what he wants us to do as we live as his disciples in the world. There's this old story of uh, the great French general Napoleon and somebody uh, uh, committed an offense that demanded death. And this young man's mom came to Napoleon and started to beg him for mercy. And Napoleon responded and he said, 
but your son doesn't deserve mercy. And her response was great. She cried out, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. And Napoleon responded and said, well, then mercy is what I'll give. See, see, when we come before the throne of God, it's not justice that we're asking for because what we deserve is, is death. What we ask for is, is mercy and grace. And because of who he is, that's exactly what he extends to us. See, verse 27 draws out another dynamic. It says this, And out of pity for him, the master released him and forgave the debt. So think about this. 10,000 talents, 20 years worth of wages, or millions, or billions, or zillions of dollars, however we want to look at it, an insurmountable amount. And the master says, I forgive it. See, that's what makes forgiveness hard. Somebody has to swallow the wrong. Somebody has to, to pay the cost of what's been done. The king lets him go, and in doing so, the king is out those 10,000 talents. And I'd invite you to write this down, because as we start to dig into the nitty-gritty of forgiveness, we have to understand that forgiveness is costly. It's not easy. See, See, we release people. When we forgive, we release people from the debt that they owe. And we say, that one's on me. I'm going to take that one, and there's no repayment necessary. I am swallowing the wrong. And in so many ways, the wrongs done can't be righted. They, they, they can't be reversed. The abuse that's taken place, the word that's been said, in so many ways, we can't undo those. And so what forgiveness does is it's not only swallowing the wrong, but it's saying, I'm stopping the cycle of retributive violence. It stops with me. I'm not going to repay an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Because you know what often happens is it's not just an eye. It's an eye and a tooth, right? We want to up the ante and we want to inflict a little bit more pain that's been inflicted on us. If you want a great example of this, Go and read the story of Samson in the book of Judges. He's wronged. And so what does he do? He goes out and he captures 300 foxes like you do. And he ties them together all by the tail like you do. And he lights a torch in between them and sends them through a field and lights the Philistines' field on fire. And in response, the Philistines kill his father-in-law and his wife. And in response... He goes and finds a donkey jawbone and he kills a thousand people. I mean, you see, it's just escalating and escalating and escalating. And what forgiveness says is, that stops with me. That stops with me. I'm not going to continue to play the one-upping game. It stops with me. I'm not keeping score. In fact, love keeps no record of wrongs. I'm tossing out the record-keeping book to see who's done more wrong and who's done more right. I'm done with that type of a mentality. As Stephen Tracy said, forgiveness is letting go of my right to hurt another person for hurting me. You see, but most of us are, are, are too mature to say, I'm going to lash out in violence. We do something more subtle, don't we? something a little bit more passive-aggressive. 
we can treat somebody poorly and feel justified in doing it, right? Because they hurt us, so I'm going to treat them bad. Or when somebody hurts us, we bring out what they've done to us in the past. This happens in marriages all the time. Yeah, I forgive you until I need that wrong to prove how right I am in this situation, right? Or when you see someone and something in your stomach just turns, you know you haven't forgiven them. Or maybe they text you or call you and you ghost them. (laughs) See, I bring those things up just to ask you to invite Jesus to stir your heart to say, Lord, is there anybody that I haven't forgiven? And maybe I'm not lashing out in violence, but I've instigated a cold war and I'm ignoring them or I'm treating them poorly or I feel justified in my wronging them. Maybe there are some people that we haven't forgiven. And Jesus would ask us today, to bring those people before his throne, to bring our heart before his throne and to ask him to do his work in us. So here's what Jesus has said so far. First, that forgiveness is experienced before it's extended, that we have to realize that we need forgiveness, and then we become people who offer it to others. And then the second thing he said is that it's costly. It's it's not easy. And listen to what he says in verse 32. It's going to move into our next point. It says, Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then in verse 35, he says something really interesting, that we would forgive from the heart, from the heart, that we would actually mean it. You know, as a dad, when my uh, kids get in a fight, I'll often tell them, okay, say you're sorry. And what do they do? I'm sorry. Sorry. And, And I respond by saying, no, you have to really mean it. And I think Jesus is giving us the same instruction here. But notice, notice that Jesus does not present forgiveness as a good idea. He presents it as an essential ethos. In fact, I'd invite you to write this down, that we would know that forgiveness is a command, not a suggestion. See, as followers of Jesus, he's calling us to be people who make it right when we are in the wrong. And he is calling us to be people who make it easy on others, trying to make it right when they are in the wrong. This is an essential part of our discipleship. In fact... Forgiveness is spiritual warfare. Listen to the way that Paul wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. And then in verse 32, he'll say, Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Did you know that when we let anger fester in our soul, We give the enemy of our soul a place to abide, a place to find residence within us. But forgiveness is the anecdote to the enemy finding an abiding place in our soul. 
And Jesus is so strong on this. He's so strong on this because there's a direct correlation between my relationship with God and how I treat the people around me. I will listen to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said this. He said, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. It's really interesting. You're bringing your offering to God and there you remember, oh, somebody has something against me and I need to go make it right. And as a pastor, I love what Jesus says. He says, hey, leave your offering there. Let's not get hasty with the offering. Leave it there. Go make the relationship right and then come back and present your offering to God. See, here's this, the picture Jesus is painting. And as, as fathers and on Father's Day, see, we get this, don't we? That our kids can't treat each other bad and then be on good terms with us, right? That the way that they treat each other has a bearing on our relationship, on my relationship as a dad with them. And God's saying, oh, the same is true of me. That you can't be on good terms with me if you treat your fellow human beings like absolute garbage. And one of the ways that you pursue relationships is that you embody forgiveness. You forgive and you forgive and you forgive. And finally, here's what Jesus says in closing. He says, and in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Isn't this a a, a poignant picture that a lack of forgiveness actually ends, lands us in jail. It's like captivity. It's a lack of freedom. It's a slavery. It's an inability to move beyond that spot. And if you've ever harbored unforgiveness, my guess is that you would nod your head and go, that's exactly what it is. As the old Chinese proverb says that uh, uh, refusing to forgive is like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. Yeah, I'd write this down. Um, Trust that forgiveness is freedom. It's not weakness. It's not weakness, not in the least. Choosing to forgive, and remember, that's just between you and God, not between you and other people, is the declaration, I refuse to let this person continue to rent space in my head. I refuse to let the wrong that they did to me fester with my desire for for revenge. After all, the method of the world is vengeance, but the way of the kingdom is forgiveness. I think Desmond Tutu summarized it so well in post-apartheid South Africa when he said, there is no future without forgiveness. And I think in our cultural moment, there may be no more important word for us today. There is no future without forgiveness. You want to walk in freedom, Jesus says? Forgive.
So, so we see that the way of the kingdom is forgiveness, and forgiveness is experienced in us before it's extended to others. That it's costly, it's not easy. That it's a command, not a suggestion. And it's freedom, it's not weakness. You know, I heard a story a while back about Corey Ten Boom who was Dutch, she wasn't Jewish, but she got put in a concentration camp for harboring Jewish people and keeping them safe. And in the concentration camp, her sister passed away and it was just, as you can maybe try to imagine, a heart-wrenching experience. Well, the year was 1947 and she'd been out for a few years and she was preaching at a church and she had just gotten done sharing a message and a man walked down the aisle. Corey, he said, Corey. And immediately, it hadn't been too long, she recognized this man. He was an SS. He had been one of the people that brutalized the girls in this concentration camp. And he came up to Corey Tenboom and he held out his hand and he said to her, Corey, I've become a follower of Jesus and I know that God has forgiven me, but I'm wondering if you will forgive me too. And Ten Boom wrote that there was nothing in her that wanted to forgive this man. She wanted to hold on to and harbor bitterness and anger, but she knew that God had forgiven her. And so she tells a story of knowing that she doesn't have it in her heart to forgive him. She prays, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you have to supply the feeling. And she did. She reached out her hand and grabbed his hand and looked him in the eye. And as she did that, she says later that she felt a tingling go all the way from her shoulder down through her arm into her hand. And she looked at this man who had wronged her and said, I I forgive you from the heart. I forgive you. And as she went back to her hotel room that evening and she was thinking about it and writing about that event, here's what she said. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and I didn't have the power, but it was the power of the Holy Spirit in me. Yeah. If the method of the world is vengeance, the way of the kingdom is forgiveness. And as we close today, I want you to hear two things as clearly as I can say them. Number one, if you have never asked for and experienced the forgiveness of your heavenly father, today is your day. Read this passage, soak in it, and realize that he's inviting you to come to him to have all of your debt, all of your sin forgiven. You don't have to have the right words. Look at the servant in this story. He gets it totally wrong. He asks for patience when he needs pardon, but what God showers down on him is grace. If you haven't made that decision, I'm calling you forward today. Give your life to Jesus. Receive the grace that he is showering down on you. And here's the second thing. Today's Father's Day. And I know that some of you have been wounded by your fathers and maybe there's some bitterness and anger that you're holding on to. Can I call you today to live out what Jesus commanded us to start to move in the direction of forgiveness? 
And, and maybe, maybe there's some dads who have been wounded by your kids. Maybe today is the day to, to start to offer forgiveness. What a beautiful Father's Day that could be if Jesus would bring about not only forgiveness, but hopefully reconciliation. But maybe it's not your father. Maybe it's somebody else. My guess is that as we talked about this today, that God stirred up some things in your heart. And see, as his disciples, we aren't called to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And I want to invite you this week to bring that person in your heart before the Lord and to just say, God, help me experience your forgiveness afresh and then help me extend forgiveness to this person that I feel like has wronged me. Yeah, there's three things. Forgiveness. We experience it from God. And then we extend it to others. It's what disciples of Jesus do. And then finally, I would encourage you to encourage it in the world around you. Experience it, extend it, and encourage it. After all, every time we pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We're praying exactly what Jesus called us to do in this essential story. Pray with me. Jesus, Those are the kinds of people that we want to become. So this week, would you stir us up by the power of your spirit, just like you did for Corey Tembu. Help us to live out your way and your heart and extending forgiveness to others as we realize how much we have been forgiven by you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.